we do come to another part of the service this evening in which we give consideration to a section of the Word of God. And as Jeff mentioned just a moment ago, we'll continue a series of considerations on the Jordan River as it's so often found and described in the book of God. It's interesting as we have looked at this series and having been reminded of some of those features concerning the Jordan River, that of course our studies have taken us on many particular directions and in fact some rather interesting approaches. In fact, to briefly review that, we noted in the, two weeks ago in that opening series of, the, of these lessons, we noticed that the Jordan River was very unique, not the least of which was for the geography surrounding her course and surrounding the way in which that river begins, meanders on its path, and reaches finally the Dead Sea. But that by far isn't the only thing causing at least some reason of uniqueness about that river. Of course, we noticed in the Old Testament, we saw in rather interesting and vivid scenes that those waters were parted in a majestic fashion, both in 2 Kings chapter 2 and in Joshua chapter 3. And in each of those instances, of course, something powerful and mighty by virtue of the power of God took place, and lasting and memorable lessons took place on each of those occasions. We did learn along that line of studies that there's only some things, of course, that God can do. Mankind is unable to do these things, and the parting of the river, that Jordan River, reminded us how our faith should be embedded in the nature of God, the things He has revealed. We also saw, did we not, in that same opening lesson, that it's God who, of course, has, through what we studied in Elijah, the realm and control of what lies beyond. Last Sunday evening, we turned our attention to the New Testament, and we studied in some detail those marvelous scenes in which John the Immerser was immersing, baptizing people in the same river, the Jordan River. We learned as he did that what a monumental occurrence that it was, foreshadowing the greatness of the coming of the Christ and the fullness of the gospel era. We did notice he did baptize Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, and the details surrounding that event occupied much of the time of our study on that occasion. As we looked at all of that, we highlighted the importance of baptism, the role that it plays, and of course, the needfulness and essentiality of that even in our day. As we studied all of that, I did state that one lesson remained, and tonight we not only will look at that one, but we'll draw this series to its conclusion. The Jordan River has yet something else about it that serves to fill perhaps all of our minds as we think about why this river seems to be so important, both in our memory and in our daily occupation. When we think about the nature of that river it is to that scene we'll turn tonight. I asked Jeff if he would sing a song for us, and he did that. Psalm 157, we just sang just a moment ago, and you may have noted as we sang that together that the wording of that song made mention of the Jordan River. I'd like you to look at the wording of it again. Psalm 157. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. O'er all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. Their God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. Filled with delight... My raptured soul would here no longer stay. Though Jordan's waves around me roll, fearless I'd launch away. We will rest in the fair and happy land 
by and by, just across on the evergreen shore, sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by, and dwell with Jesus evermore. Mention of the Jordan, of course, took place in that song, but might I invite you to look at another hymn that we sing from time to time. Song number one in this text. I am bound for the promised land is the title, and it goes like this. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. There Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. O'er all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. Finally, verse 3, When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Those two songs have explicitly used the word Jordan and made reference to it. One final occurrence, and then we'll move forward in our lesson this evening. There's yet another song. We too sing it from time to time, not quite as frequently as the previous two. Song 609 in this text. The title of that song, number 609, is, I Won't Have to Cross Jordan Alone. Please again note the wording of that song, and notice how it goes when you and I do sing that together. When I come to the river at ending of day, when, at la when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there will be somebody waiting to show me the way I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Oftentimes I'm forsaken and weary and sad when it seems that my friends have all gone. There is one thought that cheers me and makes my heart glad. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Though the billows of sorrow and trouble may sweep, Christ the Savior will care for His own. Till the end of the journey my soul He will keep. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. And then the chorus. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Jesus died all my sins to atone. When the darkness I see, He'll be waiting for me. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. All three of those songs and others might well perhaps come to your mind and mine as we think about songs that in fact make reference to the Jordan. And it's as if they do this in a way in which you and I are marching toward this location, this eventuality. It is that that will be the subject of our study tonight. This Jordan River that has occupied our thoughts and our songs takes us to, in fact, just a few of those bottom statements and those bottom remarks. What is it about the Jordan that is so memorable, that has occupied not only the thoughts of those songs and the writers thereof, but yet fills your heart and mind, and yea, shall do so until the second coming of the Savior? Crossing of the Jordan. What is the Jordan spoken of in these songs that each of us are going to cross? And what is the mechanism by which it happens? And what is the confidence and assurance of those that are children of God that makes that crossing something of which we can so joyously sing and something of which the Scriptures can point us in the fullest reliance and assurance of faith? I'd invite you to study that with me through the remainder of the lesson this evening. And as we come first, let's first of all make certain we understand the fullness of the metaphor. Why is it so proper that the writers of those songs make reference to the Jordan? And how is it in fact stated in such a way that it seems so crystal clear in your thinking and mine? 
Those thoughts, in fact, take us to that text that Lucas read just a moment ago. But let's build it up and look at it in the following fashion. Isn't it true the crossing of the Jordan River that we studied in such character and in such detail and in such dramatic vividness some two weeks ago? That scene in Joshua chapter 3, that occurrence in which the children of Israel had meandered and labored through the wilderness of desert and sin and sorrow? Wasn't it true that they eventually did arrive on the eastern shore of the, of the Jordan River? Some of those details I've asked you to consider here. God, for centuries prior to that time, had made promise to them about a land, a land of richness, a land of joy, a land of provision, a land flowing with milk and with honey. Wasn't it to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, that God had explicitly told that ancient patriarch that get up and leave the land, this Ur of the Chaldees, and go into a land that I shall show thee. And of course, there were three additional promises made to Abraham, one of which was his name would be great. Another was, in fact, all nations and families would be blessed through him. It was a monumental promise. But among the promises made, one of them was land. Your descendants, those who will be your inheritors, shall receive land. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 13, that land is described even more thoroughly. And it's a land whose boundaries were delineated. A land in which to Abraham God said, Lift up thine eyes and look northward and southward and eastward and westward. As far as your eye can see, your descendants will inherit this land. A land of plenty, a land of rest, a land of abundant joy. That kind of promise rested in the minds of those children of Israel, those Israelites, if you please, those descendants of Abraham. For centuries, they were anxious about the recipients of that promise and the glorious joy that would attach to it. As you go forward, you'll notice the time came in Exodus chapter 3 where these very same people found themselves in very unpleasant circumstances. They were, of course, in hard bondage and rigor in Egypt, for there had arisen a king that didn't know Joseph. They, of course, subjugated these children of Israel to hard labor. And in so doing, in Exodus 3 verse 8, God commissioned Moses, You go and you bring my people out of this place unto a land flowing with milk and with honey. Here already was a dichotomy in the sense of a contrast. On the one hand was the unpleasant hard bondage of Egypt. On the other was the sweet land to which I'm going to take you. Amazing to think about that distinction, isn't it? That contrast that had continued to dwell in the hearts and minds of these descendants of Abraham and was continuing to be encouraged by the very words of God. You'll notice as time rolled forward, this phrase... This phrase, land flowing with milk and honey, that came to be a very vibrant part of the Old Testament passages. Some 17 times that phrase is found in the books of Exodus as well as Numbers and Deuteronomy. It is found so often and we see it had become thoroughly ingrained in the promises that God had set forth through Moses, the promises He had set forth even later through Joshua. This land flowing with milk and honey... That statement alone has within it the context of ease, the context of bounty, the context of provision, the context that all would be well here. 
it of course would no doubt make those Israelites anxious for this place, eager to enter therein, and enthusiastic about what it would mean. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that land, of course, on many occasions is referred to as Canaan. That too occurred in these songs that Jeff just led us in. I'm bound for the promised land, the land of Canaan, marching toward that golden, glorious abode. This land recognized as that land of Canaan. As those Israelites left Egyptian bondage, on that marvelous night in which, of course, God had brought the tenth of those plagues upon them, the death of the firstborn. But from that point forward, onward they marched, encamping at various places as set forth in Numbers 33. And as they camped piece by piece, moving toward that land of Canaan, we find some of these thoughts coming quickly to us. All the while, they were looking forward to an abode a place of rest, a place just across that Jordan River. As they marched and came ultimately through the wilderness of sin, they finally pitched for quite some time on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And two weeks ago, we gave a recollection and a remembrance of what it must have been like to encamp in that place when just across the river was the final destination. Just across the river was the place to which they'd been marching for four decades. Just across the river was the abode to which they had turned their attention for centuries since the days of Abraham. And there it was. You can imagine the fervor and excitement that must have welled up in their hearts and minds when the spies were sent out and came back and said, Yes, indeed, that's the land. They brought back clumps of grapes so heavy it was difficult to even bear them. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is exactly the way God had described it. It's just across the river. It's just across there for our taking. But sadly enough, some years earlier, there had been ten spies that said, in fact, we are not able to take it. Those spies had said that we are like grasshoppers compared to those giants. We are not able, in fact, to overwhelm and take it. Thirty-eight years had passed since that time. Thirty-eight years of death, carcasses strewn across the wilderness of sorrow and sin. Finally, another generation now was encamped just on the eastern side of that river. And just across that Jordan River lay the land of Canaan. The boundaries of that land had already again been identified and some more thoughts perhaps are now worthy of our consideration. In Joshua chapter 1 verse number 11 we notice that God, again speaking to Joshua, is very firm and direct, pointing him to the reality that you lead this people across this river and on into the land to which they have been promised. This land, of course, was so powerful and mighty before them, but as we noted again earlier, there was a gigantic problem. For that very occasion in which the people were now prepared to cross, the river was at flood stage. It was the season of the year in which it had overflown its banks. And so there was an even larger obstacle between them and the destination. Here are the children of Israel, the land of destination to which they had turned their attention for virtually a half a millennium was just across the river. How were they going to get there? What kind of safe passage would be theirs? What kind of means whereby they could cross would come their way? 
long before there were days of any bridges built across the Jordan, long before the days when there were other sophisticated means whereby they could cross, here was a people numbering likely well over two million and they needed to cross the river. The land of promise was just before them. Might we keep in mind that two weeks ago we learned something dramatic. It'll be a critical part of the remainder of the lesson tonight as well. That people did enjoy a safe crossing, but only because God was with them. The only reason why they were able to cross that river, remember God even stopped it so that they could cross it in dryness, if you please. And the only reason why that was permissible was because a power far mightier than they was with them. The power of God Himself, the almighty, awesome God of heaven. It was He who gave them safe passage. It was He who was there to be with them, to lead them, to guide them, to strengthen them, to encourage them, and to provide them the safety of that passage. The safety of that passage comes near the bottom of that section on that slide when it is so interesting to observe how things are different when God is not alone. Some chapters earlier, back in Exodus chapters 13 and 14, we recall there that there was a need to cross the Red Sea. Here again, God's people enjoyed safe passage. The Egyptians did not. The Egyptians tried also to cross over, but remember the flood waters came in upon them and slew them, slaughtered them, drowned them. It makes an eternity of difference whether God is with one or not. When God is with one, there is safe passage. When God was not, it was disastrous, catastrophic. And in fact, it led only to that which was death and dearth. It is for that reason we come to the second part of this metaphor. We've looked at the physical instances of Jordan and the crossing of it by the children of Israel. What about the meaning for you and for me? We've already seen it in these songs, but let's amplify it. Let's elaborate on it slightly. You'll notice near the bottom, God also has promised a great land of rest and plenty. That promise sounds a lot like some of those promises made to the children of Israel. They were told to march toward a land, this land of Canaan, plentiful. and It was, of course, filled with all the good things of provision of God. But isn't it true that the Christian also has been given a mighty and abundant set of promises, not the least of which are these? Hebrews 11, you'll notice particularly verses 10 and 16. Speaking about those great patriarchs of that day and time, they looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. They weren't satisfied with only Canaan, the cities that encumbered within it. They were looking indeed for a city whose builder and whose maker is God. As they looked for that city and sought for it, we remember in Hebrews 13, 14, speaking to you and to me as well, you and I look and long and seek for a city whose foundations are far more sturdy and whose character is far greater than any cities that this earth has to offer. The nature and character of Philippians 3 verse 20 explicitly tells us our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship. We know that in this flesh we're citizens of the United States of America. And we're happy and proud and honored to be a part of a country such as this. But Paul forever reminded us our citizenship ultimately, finally, and triumphantly is in heaven. 
No wonder we long for a place beyond this one. And we long for a reality described near the bottom of that slide. The Bible hasn't left us without that kind of description. The marvelous way in which the book of Revelation closes brings before us the following sights. In the first 20 chapters of the book of Revelation, we find more perhaps directly from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 20, verse number 10, a description about a number of revelations, all of which encumbered a powerful and wonderful message of victory. But however, the final and ultimate victory has only been hinted at up to that point. And then finally in that chapter, there's a panoramic view of a tremendous occurrence of judgment. It's often called the great white throne judgment. And we notice books are opened and everyone is judged out of the contents of those books. We do notice that the devil and the false teacher and all of the henchmen that have been their followers are cast into a fiery lake of brimstone and fire and forever thereafter they in fact shall be. After all of that has taken place, it then leaves us to only ponder, what about the other set? Those that have the seal of God on their forehead, as we mentioned this morning. Those who have, in fact, been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14. Those who have followed the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, Revelation 14, 4. Those who've died in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13. What about them? It is to them that Revelation chapters 21 and 22 comes before us. We notice in Revelation 21, John, what you see, write in a book. And John saw the glorious adorned city coming out of heaven. And element by element and verse by verse, he begins his description. He sees a place where there's no death, no pain, no sorrow, no crying. He sees a place where there's no lying, there's no murder, there's no fornication. There's nothing like that there. And then in verse number 8 and 9, he goes on to describe this abode, this place in which the sweetness of all of those forevermore appreciate the grandeur and glory of the one who had died for them. And he begins then to describe, John, what you see right in the book. And he sees 12 foundations on which this abode rests. And these are beautiful stones like diamonds and emeralds and jacinths and beryls. And he sees 12 entrances. And he sees, furthermore, a cubical space, 12,000 furlongs apiece, absolutely and fully equipped for all of those prepared to enter therein. All the richness and all the abundance and all the provision that one can imagine is to be found there. In fact, we even notice that there's no need for the light, for the Son of God is there, and He and God together form all the light that it'll ever need. And there's no need for a temple there, for in fact all the absoluteness that the temple ever represented is here in the absolute presence of the Almighty God of heaven. You'll notice in verse 27 of Revelation 21 that among the things not there, defilement. There is no defilement in any form or fashion. It's a perfect place. Sweetness abounds absoluteness and all of the absolute character of Christ Jesus Himself. As chapter 22 opens, we notice other things described. In addition to there being no curse, we see in all the beauty and grandeur the fact that the fruits of the trees on this place on either side of that crystal clear river are born every month. 
There's never a season when there's not plenty. There's never a season when, in fact, all the nature and goodness of eternal living aren't there. The tree of life is to be seen one more time. What we lost in Adam, we gained through Jesus. Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit and forever were cast out of the Garden of Eden, no longer having access to the tree of life, and therefore they died physically, also spiritually that day. However, Jesus, as we learn in Romans 5, verse number 12, gave us again access to the beautiful and majestic tree of life. But the tree isn't in this world. It's in the beautiful abode of heaven. And we see it in Revelation 22, 14. For there, John, one more time, what you see right in a book, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. There's where the tree of life will ultimately and finally be found. And our entrance and power of that tree brings us to the next set of thoughts on this next slide. For you'll notice the parallels are rather striking, aren't they? The children of Israel had promise of a bountiful land. The Christian has promise of a bountiful land. You'll notice that hope to which the Christian turns his attention is ultimately and finally this place you and I have just described. This place called heaven. Just as surely as the children of Israel anticipated and anxiously awaited their entrance into that land of Canaan, the Christian anticipates and anxiously awaits the time when he can understand the absolute fullness of all the hope he's lived through life. Look at some of these verses. Ephesians 4 verse 4 tells us there is one hope. There are things that you and I find exciting in this life, but there's one main hope for any Christian. It is the reality of entrance into heaven. For everything else has been meaningless if we don't, if we don't make that one. No wonder Jesus taught Himself in Mark 8, 36 and 37, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It is with that in mind, you'll notice Colossians 1 verse 5, Paul explicitly to the Colossian congregation said, The hope laid up for you in heaven. The reality of the hope you know and I is in heaven. Beyond that, you'll notice in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, Peter spoke of it in such eloquent language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is described then in verse 5 as being undefiled that fadeth not away. Isn't that sweet? You see, just like the children of Israel had their hopes resting in Canaan, there's where they longed for the dwelling of their place to be. The Christian also has a place to which he or she hopes. As the New Testament unfolds that thought even more, it brings us to the very passage and text that Lucas read a moment ago. The fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews is a chapter that unlike any other, hits the nail on the head in terms of the study before us tonight. You'll notice that some of the things stated read like this. Verse number 1, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Notice that the Hebrew writer made reference to a rest. And it's not past tense. It's not as if he's discussing the rest to which the children of Israel were longing. He's discussing the rest that you and I are seeking today, now. But you'll notice he said, 
we'd better be careful lest we come up short of it. Notice verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, and if you'd like to make a note in your Bible, that word is Joshua. He's speaking here of Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? The word Jesus and Joshua in Greek are the same, but the Hebrew writer here is referring to Joshua. That Old Testament character, arguably the unsung hero of the Old Testament. And he notices that if Joshua had given them rest, there would not have been any promises of another one. But yet we know in the Bible there are additional references to the rest of God. And therefore, verse 11 says, Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That's a direct commandment to you and to me. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. There is still a rest to which you and I seek, a rest to which we yearn and a rest that we anticipate enjoying. This glorious abode, of course, of heaven is this place of rest. But as we march forward in our study you'll notice that there's something that's dividing us from that place as well. The children of Israel, it was the Jordan River separating them from the land of Canaan. The Jordan River, and not only that, it was the Jordan that had overflowed its banks. A mighty obstacle, a powerful and resistant force was standing between them and their place of inheritance. You'll notice there's a parallel, though, for you and for me as well. There's something that seems to stand between you and me and our abode of heaven as well. As you come on that slide, we all know what that is. It is that rather fateful appointment we call death. Every one of us are marching toward it. And if the Lord delays His coming, every one of us are going to experience it. As we age in life and that date seems to be approaching us, it looks more fateful. It looks more overwhelming, just like the overwhelming Jordan River must have looked to the Israelites in Joshua chapter 3. It may look so dark, so uncertain, so frightful, but let us not lose hope. For indeed, the parallel is almost complete. For you'll notice at the bottom of that slide that the children of Israel enjoyed a safe crossing of that Jordan in the Old Testament. And it was only because of His power and His presence and only because of His blessing that that was possible. The parallel is complete when you and I notice the statements of Hebrews 4 as well as some other passages. Our safe crossing of that same river of death, that Jordan River of death, can also be a safe one. It can also be one fraught with ease and comfort and joy knowing the reward that awaits beyond it. When you and I contemplate death, and we've often attended those funerals of loved ones and even family members and others that we cherish and know even in days not since long past in our congregation here. It is something though that wells up within us to a powerful and majestic sense of hope when we realize the crossing of the Jordan ushered those of the Old Testament era into a place and time in which they received the inheritance that they had been promised. You'll notice at the bottom a few more verses. Just as surely as death may appear that whelming flood that seems so strong, Jesus told His followers these words in John 14, 
Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You'll notice that the Lord spoke of a situation and a circumstance in which there was a rather great gulf to be crossed. But He said, let not your heart be troubled. As far as we know, all of those apostles, with a possible exception of one, died very horrific deaths, persecuted, blasphemed, insulted greatly, often under great duress. I wonder how often they reflected on the words of John 14.1. I wonder how often they allowed the confidence and the assurance and the thinking of that verse to dwell within their mind. You and I notice that we too then have this matter of death standing between us, and that's the thrust of those songs and the words that we noted earlier. That song number 157, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. You and I may be called on with ill health to face what death has in store for us. And we may face it in any number of other ways. But the point is, for those that are faithful members of the body of Christ, and those that are faithful Christians, and those who've placed their heart and hands and life in the character of the one who can safely care for them, they have no need to fear, for all is well with them. Sometimes we sing that song about it being well with our soul. If we live in faithfulness and if we live in confidence and assurance and understanding the power and promise of the promises of the Master, then we know that those things are sweet indeed. And we do know how strongly they lead us to some of the bottom thoughts on that slide. I stated earlier in the lesson that there was a safe passage for the children of Israel across the Jordan River because God was with them and because that they had trusted and did what He had said. They followed His commandments. When the waters were touched by the feet of the priests and they shortly became therein, those waters parted because they did what God told them. We notice in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 57, the last section of that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The inspired apostle had these words to say, and they are so filled with comfort, I would invite you to note them with me as I read them. Beginning in verse number 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. O death, where is thy sting? Where is the sting of death? It's not an overwhelming, powerful thing, for you'll notice in that same passage, we are able to appreciate the victory in verse 57 that's available to us through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. If we then are faithful children of His, we too will have safe passage. Death may hold then for those in the world a great deal of uncertainty and a great deal of tumultuous consideration. But for those who are able to die in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13 reminds us that it's a time of passing into rest, a time of passing into an abode beyond this one that is filled with the sweetness we see described in Luke 16, where there Lazarus found himself in a place not of torment but of comfort where the labors and efforts and trials of this life were long past, a time of mere waiting for that second coming of the Master. What a stark contrast that is to what awaits those who are not children of the Master. It's almost frightful, causing the hairs on our neck to stain when we read passages like 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-9. through 9. For these who are not children of the King, listen to what awaits them. Paul, as he addressed the Thessalonians, these who had had some misgivings, some misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ, he said, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It is left to you and me then at this point to make our decision as to in what way do you and I hope to cross that Jordan, that thing we call death. Do you want to meet it with God as your Father and with all the ease and security that the promises of the Bible hold in store? Or do we wish to encounter it with all the fate and all the tragedy and all the terrible things associated with not being a child of His? Death must be a frightful thing for those not ready, for those who are not those that have placed their confidence in this book. I don't know how insanity they can approach it, but yet for the child of God such as yourself and me, we have the reality that the crossing of the Jordan can be as safe and as joyous and as exciting as it was when the children of Israel crossed it in Joshua chapter 3. With that said, let's close our lesson by noting this final set of thoughts, and then the lesson in this series will be yours. We noticed in Hebrews chapter 4 that time and again reference is made to add admonition to you and to me to let us therefore, verse number 11, strive to approach that into cross with safety, to approach it with due diligence. That does mean that in this life we must be cautious and careful and strive to live in the way that God has commanded. In the words of Titus 2.12, soberly, righteously, and godly. It is that that will make our approach to death one that need not be filled with fear, but can be filled with anticipation and can be filled with the hopefulness of that thing of which Paul spoke and the greatness of passages that we can see here. To enter that final rest of God, we know that we must cross that Jordan River of death. But as we've sung in those songs, we can do so with a sense of confidence and a sense of faith. For if we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it shall be an opportunity that we too shall know even then that God shall sustain us, He will uphold us, and He will sustain us on to that safe and final place. I would invite us to each analyze our life then pretty carefully at this moment and ask, 
Would the crossing be safe if you were faced to cross this Jordan tonight? What about tomorrow? What about this coming Friday? Would your crossing be a safe one? Could you do so with all the appreciation that you have lived in faithfulness and can know that all things are well with your soul? If not, we're going to offer an opportunity during the singing of this hymn in just a moment. And if we could be of assistance to you, maybe you are a wayward child of God, one who once knew what it was like to pillow your head in safety and security, but who in days gone by you've lost what that means and you no longer are faithful. Why not come back and beseech the prayers of brethren and let us pray with you and for you? If you have never become a member of the body of Christ and you know that there's sin in your life, you know right from wrong and you know Jesus died for you and you know there's a plan of salvation revealed in the Bible. Tonight you know then enough that you need to come forward and you need to allow the blood of Jesus to wash your sins away in baptism. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, if you are willing to repent of your sins, we will take a simple confession from your lips and then we will immerse you in water for the permission of your sins. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in this audience, we would only invite you to let us know the way we can be of service and assistance and that you do that while together we stand and while we sing.